Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5. Our text this morning will be verses 10 through 12 as we look at the eighth beatitude. But before we read the text, will you pray with me? Our Father, as we open up your word, we pray that you would speak to us, teach us by your truth, O Lord Jesus. Let the words of our mouths, the words of my mouth, rather, and the meditation of my heart, Lord, be pleasing in your sight as I proclaim your word. And Father, let our ears hear the truth of your word and by your spirit discern the truth of your word and apply it to our lives. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Discipleship in the kingdom of heaven, part three. Last week, uh, Wes taught on part two, those uh, verses five through verse nine for the Beatitudes. And this week we round out the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount uh, with discipleship in the kingdom of heaven. Dr. David mentioned that the theme of the service is persecution. Not exactly a catchy theme that we want to come and sit and hear about. But nonetheless, this is what Jesus addresses in the Sermon on the Mount. And there is a certain reality that we need to come to grips with as Christians as we encounter a text like this in Scripture. That is, that Jesus speaks very frankly and forthrightly about what to expect, what kingdom citizens can expect as we live in this world and live out our faith. And so this morning, I want us to see that disciples of Christ image God to the world through countercultural living. Disciples of Christ image God to the world through countercultural living. When I was in seminary at New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary, students jokingly called the campus uh, Mayberry in the Hood. <laughs> they called it Mayberry in the Hood because in either direction that you left from the seminary, within five minutes, you were in the two worst housing projects in New Orleans. There was St. Bernard Housing Project on one side, and there was the Florida-slash-Desire Street Housing Project on the other side, which became very dangerous when they combined the two into one because of gangs and things of that nature. So the campus was gated with 24 hours, had 24-hour campus security as well, uh, and any student that was on campus knew to be careful uh, in leaving the campus at night. In fact, they wouldn't leave on foot at night. So it was in a dangerous section of the city, and the seminary was seen as somewhat of a safe haven. Students could remain in the bubble, if you will, and stay in the safety and the security of campus life and live somewhat of a monastic life if they wanted to. Or they could venture out into the surrounding neighborhoods and into the city, risking the danger of stepping outside of the security of a gated campus with 24-hour campus security. Similarly, I think some Christians lived their entire Christian lives in the bubble of Christianity, never seeking to venture outside the circle of Christian friends and church family. But this isn't God's design for His people or His church. Yes, we find strength and encouragement from our Christian friends and church family. Yes, we are even a prioritized gathering together with God's people for worship. But Christian fellowship and worship gatherings don't exempt God's people from engaging the world for the cause of Christ. And so the Beatitudes of the Sermon on the Mount are really kingdom realities for citizens of God's kingdom. Followers of Christ will progressively manifest 
characteristics of godliness in our daily lives as we live in the world. Not of our own volition, but of the Holy Spirit's power at work in and through our lives. And so we need to remember that the Beatitudes are not requirements for kingdom entrance. The Beatitudes are realities for kingdom living for followers of Christ. And so we begin this morning in verse 10, the last Beatitude. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. As I've thought about the implications of the Sermon on the Mount over the last several weeks, and particularly with regard to the church and the culture that we live in, I've concluded that the church's problem isn't an attendance problem. The church's problem isn't financial problems. The church's problem isn't even a conversion problem. Those aren't the root issues. They don't get to the root issue. They're just symptomatic of the root problem. And the root problem is a divided heart for the church in America. From preachers to parishioners, we have a divided heart. And our divided hearts are filled with complacency. You see, we want for God to move. But not so much that it interrupts and inconveniences our lives. We want our churches to grow numerically, but not so much that we're ready to prioritize worship gatherings over everything else in our lives, or not so much that we're we're ready to prioritize preaching or speaking the gospel to those in our circle of influence at the expense, maybe, of our friendships, not negatively, but at the expense, maybe, of being shunned, I should say, not so much that we're made uncomfortable by having to invest in new community and discipleship relationships, We want to reach our community and the world with the gospel, but not so much that we're brought to a place of sacrificing our time and money and doing so, doing without for the spread of the gospel. And so one of the questions that we meet today as we encounter God's word is what impact do these beatitudes, these kingdom realities have in my life as I grow in my Christian faith and as I progress in my Christian journey? What impact do these kingdom realities, these beatitudes, have in my life as I grow in my Christian faith and progress in my Christian journey? The answer, in short, Jesus is saying persecution will come. And so this morning I want to give us three truths about persecution in the Christian life. First, persecution presses us into dependence on God. Verse 10, we see this. In verse 10, Jesus speaks generally when he says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Righteous living brings about persecution, is what Jesus is saying in essence. And so we could say that righteousness is characterized as imaging God to the world. Righteousness is characterized as imaging God to the world. Jesus implies this in verse 11 when he says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. 
Well, why would it be on Christ's account if they're doing it to the disciples? Well, it's because the disciples were imaging Christ to the world, right? As followers of Christ, they were displaying a righteous life. and so Not external righteousness necessarily, but they were displaying a righteousness that imaged God or imaged Christ to the world. And so why does persecution come? It comes because Christ's followers image God to the world. And so we image Jesus when we carry out his cultural, his countercultural mission. And this opens the Christ's disciples up to persecution. The righteousness that he speaks about is the progressive transformation of the godly character as we grow in spiritual maturity. Now, I think in my flesh that I want to minimize persecution. As Dr. David asked earlier, raise your hand if you got up and said, I want to be persecuted this morning. So like you, we all want to minimize, we don't want to be persecuted for our faith. But on the other hand, I recognize that as, as countercultural kingdom, as, as the countercultural kingdom realities, these kingdom characteristics of the Beatitudes progressively grow in my life and in the life of God's people, it will distinctly mark me as different. I'll have a different worldview. We'll have different perspectives on things, on issues that come up, on social issues, maybe even on political issues, right? But I recognize that as a kingdom citizen, and as I grow in these kingdom realities, that it's going to mark me as different. So if I'm a disciple of Christ, this is my journey. And practically, for disciples of Christ, here's what that means. Just quickly, think about, think about the, uh, the, the Beatitudes. That if, those who are poor in spirit. What does it mean? It means I make much of God and make less of myself. So that I humbly approach God. It means that I have a right view of self in light of who God is. For those who mourn. Mourning teaches us to what? It teaches us to, to loathe my sin teaches me to walk in repentance and God will comfort me. God will lift me. Those who are meek. We learn to exercise a trust in God's plan. We learn to to wait on him rather than making our own way. It means I don't pridefully assert my will over God's will. Instead, I discover the joy of obedience. You know, it may mean that our career becomes less lucrative. It may mean that we do without some of the finer luxuries that American society and life affords us. It may mean that you make some sacrifices, meekness. But the assurance of God's word is that the meek will what? Inherit the earth, right? Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they have an increasing yearning for God and for his ways. This is what Jesus prayed in the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. You see, as we pursue personal righteousness, our character conforms to godliness. And then we also even promote righteousness within the society at large. We stand for social justice. We advocate for the poor, for the orphan, for the widow. We advocate for the foreigner in our land. But then merciful. We're to be people of mercy as well, aren't we? We're quick to extend forgiveness and grace in spite of how we've been treated. Why? Because we show mercy and grace to others based not on what they deserve, but like us, 
based on the mercy and grace God has shown us. Remembering that our enemy is not of the flesh and blood, but ultimately Satan who, who dwells as the prince of the power of the air. Are those who are pure in heart, purity, moral purity, ethical purity, guarding our heart and our mind. We uphold and we promote God's design for his creation in all aspects of life. We're seeking redemption of the creation like Christ is. This is his mission in the world. So we're people of truth. We rebuke deceit. We speak the truth because we have the truth. And as as kingdom citizens of God's kingdom, we live according to God's economy where God's economy seeks truth and speaks truth. Truth rules the day. Or as peacemakers, we promote peace among mankind. How do we do that? By proclaiming peace with God. We seek unity in the truth, not division. The heart of being a peacemaker is sharing the gospel. This is why Paul said in Ephesians 6.15, And as shoes, part of the armor of God, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. You see, when we carry the gospel of peace to a world that Scripture says is hostile to God, it's likely that we'll experience persecution. In fact, we can expect that we will experience persecution. Because the kingdom realities of God's kingdom are contrary. They're countercultural to man's kingdom. And so Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. In one sense, righteous living invites persecution. Certainly not always and in all circumstances, but Jesus doesn't back off of this claim throughout his teaching. In John 15, 18, Jesus says, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. Other verses which speak to this throughout the New Testament, Matthew 10, 22 and 24. Write it down and go back and look at Matthew 10, 22 through 24. Or Philippians 1, 29 that Dr. David read earlier. Or 1 Peter 3, 14. Or 2 Timothy 3, 12. Among many others, see where you can look through Scripture and see how Jesus teaches this, how the New Testament teaches this. So Jesus assumes persecution for his followers, doesn't he? Look at verse 11. When others revile you, he says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you. You notice that he says when others revile you, not if. You see, this is the testimony of the church throughout church history. The early church didn't escape persecution. How or why are we any different? And so Jesus says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the same promise that we saw in verse 3. It's the present tense. God's kingdom is present here and now. And while we wait for the future fulfillment of his kingdom, his present reign and his present power are active. And this is good news for us believers, for the church. So that in the midst of persecution, we have a solidarity with Christ. We have one who has suffered in our place for our reconciliation. And so in coming to him, we experience his present reign. We experience his power even in the midst of persecution so that he strengthens us and he sustains us to live in a countercultural way. So how do we apply Christ's word to our lives? 
Here's how we simply accept this text for what it is. An assumption that when we live in such a way that we image Christ to a lost and dying world. Persecution for righteousness sake will come. So the root problem in our lives, church, is a divided heart. Let us live with a countercultural conviction as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Let us evidence the kingdom reality of Christ's transforming work in our lives. <clears throat> in September's issue of Christianity Today, I was reading an article on is the church, the title, the question it's po- that posed, it posed was, is the church in America persecuted? And a Middle Eastern underground house church leader speaks about the persecution of the church in America. Here's what he says. Persecution is easier to understand when it's physical torture, death, or imprisonment. American persecution is like an advanced stage of cancer. It eats away at you. You cannot feel it. This is the worst kind of persecution. A Syrian man remaining in the region to assist Christians and Muslims cautions... It wasn't only ISIS who laid waste to the church. Our cultural compromises with the government and our divisions against each other brewed for a long time. Hear this. We are Damascus, the seed of Christianity. What happened to us can happen to you. Be careful. Persecution will press the church into greater dependence on God. But secondly, persecution advances the gospel. Jesus is the most polarizing figure of human history. You realize that? Maybe it's arguable, but I think he's the most polarizing figure of human history. Jesus says they will revile you. They will persecute you. They will falsely say evil about you on my account or because of me. Christian, realize that as you image Christ to the world, people will not be neutral. They'll either believe or they'll reject. Christ wasn't brash, nor did he lack intentionality throughout his earthly mission. But he lived and he proclaimed God's truth as he reconciled man to God. This was his mission. And so likewise, we're to carry out his redemptive mission. And so Jesus says, this is what will happen as you image me to the world on my account. They will insult you. That is verbally mock you and shame you. They'll say derisive things towards you and about you behind your back. In fact, the word that's used here to describe insult you, it describes the very insults that were hurled at Jesus. It's the same word that's used in Matthew 27, 39 through 44 as Jesus hung on the cross. They'll harass you. They'll pursue you violently. They'll even lie about you and slander you and trump up false charges against you. But Jesus says, blessed are you when this happens. In fact, he moves from the third person plural pronoun in verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted to the second person plural pronoun now in verse 11. Blessed are you when they persecute you. He got personal all of a sudden, didn't he? Not just about others who are being persecuted. It's about you. When you live righteously and image me to the world, you're going to be persecuted. You see, in God's economy, here's what God does. God uses 
our testimony of hardships and persecution to advance his kingdom while simultaneously preparing us for the greater glory to come in his heavenly kingdom. That's why he says, great is your reward. This is the very thing that Paul faced in Philippians as he was writing from prison. He says, the former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. But in Philippians 1, 12 and 13, he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. His imprisonment really had served to advance the gospel so that it has become well known throughout the whole imperial guard and to the rest, of, to the rest that my imprisonment for Christ. Let me read that again. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become, con- become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. You see what happens in the midst of Paul's persecution. The church actually grew stronger. When he was locked up for his faith, they grew stronger. Now, we don't, we don't go looking for persecution. But when it comes, know this. Know that it's not in vain. Joseph Son, former pastor of Second Baptist Church in Orator, Romania, told of a church member who sought his counsel. He said, in Romania, if you, have, if you hold a high position, when you become a Christian, you will be demoted. In my church, a man who was a top manager of a huge factory got converted. About a month later, he came to me and said, Brother Joseph, they found out that I became a Christian. Now they're going to bring me together with thousands of people, the whole factory. They'll mock me, they'll deride me, And then, of course, they'll demote me. I'll be happy if they even keep me on the smallest salary as possible. But they'll give me a few minutes to defend myself. How shall I do it? Brother Joseph answered, Oh, I don't think you should defend yourself. This is your great chance. Tell them who Jesus is. What he did in you and what he is for you today. Instantly, his face shone and he said, I know what I'm going to do. And he did it. In fact, he did it so effectively that afterwards he kept coming to me, Pastor Joseph, saying, you know, I can hardly move in the factory today. Wherever I go, somebody grabs my hand, pulls me into the corner, checks to make sure that nobody sees he's talking with me. And then he says, give me the address of your church or tell me more about Jesus or give me a Bible. People were saved that day because of the way that one man suffered for the Lord. Now, we may not experience persecution, or we may experience persecution and suffering to this degree. We can experience suffering and persecution for the salvation of others. We experience persecution in a social way today. All suffering, all persecution is not always physical. And so whether it's sickness that results in a hospital stay and allows you to share the gospel with a nursing staff, or whether it's a sickness that leads to death and allows your testimony to be proclaimed so that others hear the testimony of your faith as the gospel. Or whether it's through the, uh, the increasing cultural disdain that we see for Christianity throughout our country. Little Sisters of the Poor, the group of nuns being uh, in a lawsuit battle with the federal government over the Affordable Care Act and 
the abortion mandate, whether it's faith, faith-based institutions being constricted by the laws that are being put on them, or whether it's medical providers and conscience in, uh, in right-to-life decisions, and so on and so forth, all, all throughout the culture. There are ways that the church is feeling pressured, and there are ways that we are persecuted. But hear me today, church, persecution, when it comes, it's not in vain. And so let us be faithful to stand up on the truth of God's word, to be a people of truth, to be a people who even are, are seeing the Holy Spirit of God manifest these kingdom realities in our lives. So friends, persecution will come. It will come to the righteous. And when it does, don't run from it. Instead, let us seek to bring glory to God through it in that moment. Let us be witnesses for Christ as we image him to a lost world. And so God uses our persecution and suffering to advance the gospel. Thirdly, this morning, persecution prepares us for our future hope. We see this in verse 12. The first person that first reads or the person that first reads verse 12 might think it appears to be a typographical error. It goes against all rationale. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. When persecution comes, Jesus says rejoice and be glad. In fact, he doesn't just say it. He commands it. Why would Jesus command us to rejoice and to be glad in our persecution for righteousness sake? Here's why. Because when we endure persecution for Christ, we image Christ's love most clearly for those who hate him. Think about it. Isn't this what Christ did when he suffered and died on the cross? Displaying the love of God so great that he would suffer so great that we might be reconciled to God. Believer, is this not the reason that you would endure suffering and persecution? So that those who are who are persecuting you might be reconciled to God. Isn't this the hope of the gospel? And so Jesus says, rejoice and to be glad because we image Christ's love most clearly for those who hate him when we're persecuted. This doesn't mean we're to have a martyr complex, complex as if everyone's out to get us. Nor is it a license for brash, unintentional actions and conversations where, where we picket concerts or pass pharisaical condemnation on others who we're in conversation with. He says, rejoice and be glad. In, in essence, he means to be happy, to be joyful in the midst of persecution, and to let this be evidenced by our, our countenance and even by our words. The apostles of the early church exemplified this when they were brought before the Sanhedrin and they were flogged in Acts chapter 5. And when they, the council, had taken Gamaliel's advice and had called the apostles in, they flogged them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, it says, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Christ. You see, they rejoiced because they knew the Savior's suffering on the cross was for their reconciliation with God. And they knew the gospel's power to transform lives. For them, there was no greater joy than proclaiming that message 
and living for God's glory, even if it meant persecution. Jesus says, just as the prophets before you were persecuted, you too, as prophetic mouthpieces, will be persecuted. Church, this is the cost of following Christ. When our home group was serving at St. Vincent de Paul this past week, after sharing the gospel, sharing how Christ died for our sin and took God's wrath upon himself so that all who believe could be reconciled to God, one of the women asked me, what does Jesus expect in return for this? To which I said, the words of Christ are, take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me. He who seeks to save his life will lose it, but he who loses it for my sake will save it. Pastor Joseph Son again was before his Romanian interrogators being questioned. Here's what he said to them. Sir, let me explain how I see this issue. Your supreme weapon is killing me. My supreme weapon is dying. Here's how it works. You know that my sermons on tape have spread all over the country. If you kill me, those sermons will be sprinkled with my blood. Everyone will know I died for my preaching, and everyone who has a tape will pick it up and say, I'd better listen again to what this man preached, because he really meant it. He sealed it with his life. So, sir, my sermons will speak ten times louder than before. I will actually rejoice in this supreme victory if you kill me. Later, Song found another officer, or found out another officer said, we know that Mr. Song would love to be a martyr, but we... We won't be that foolish as to fulfill his wish. Son said, I stopped to consider the meaning of that statement. I remembered how for many years I had been afraid of dying. I had kept a low profile because I wanted badly to live. I had wasted my life in inactivity. Now that I had placed my life on the altar and decided I was ready to die for the gospel, they were telling me they would not kill me. I could go wherever I wanted in the country and preach whatever I wanted, knowing I was safe. As long as I tried to save my life, I was losing it. Now that I was willing to lose it, I found it. Christians in America face a similar plight as Pastor Song, don't we? We fear death. But we don't fear physical death. We fear a social death. We fear a complete commitment to Christ because we might be mocked or because we might suffer social reproach or because we might be passed over for the promotion or because we even fear that God might actually call us out of complacency and interrupt our comfortable, prosperous lives. But Jesus says, rejoice and be glad when you're persecuted, for your reward in heaven is great. Let me ask you this morning, are you storing up earthly rewards? Or are you living now for heavenly rewards that are promised later? Are you trying to save your life, or are you losing your life for Christ's sake? Believer, God has saved you for his glory, and living for his glory will bring persecution. But persecution teaches us to long for our heavenly dwelling. And for those who suffer, Jesus says, you will receive a great 
reward. There's a direct correlation between the amount of suffering that we walk through and persecution. And I think the degree to which we long for our heavenly home. I can think of a few appropriate ways to respond to God's word this morning. One, believer, repent of inactivity. Repent of a divided heart in your life and lose your life for Christ's sake. Secondly, if you've never surrendered your life to Christ, start here. Confess Jesus as Lord. Confess and repent of your sin before him. Seek his forgiveness and believe in Jesus Christ, the one who died, was buried, and was resurrected and ascended to the Father so that we might have reconciliation with the Father. And then thirdly, pray for continual growth of righteousness in your life. Pray that your witness isn't hindered by sin, but that God shines brightly and the light of Christ shines brightly as you image God to the world. Let me pray and you respond as the Lord leads. Our Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would strengthen us as your people to respond to your word. Strengthen us, Lord, to live for you. Strengthen us, Father, to seek your face. And God, strengthen us to be image bearers to this world. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand? Thank you.